Amen. Let's stand and take our Bibles tonight. First Chronicles 17 with, if you would, please. First Chronicles 17. And we have a kind of a preaching Bible study I'm going to give you tonight. First Chronicles 17. I pray for a message that will encourage you and help you. I'm so glad to see Brother and Mrs. Lovegrove here tonight. And uh, there are missionaries going, uh, raising support to Ethiopia. Brother, you're about what percentage complete now on, on deputation? Close to 100. What were you at? You're 98? 97 and a half. He's almost there. He's ready to go. Amen? Amen. And uh, we're praying that God... Hey, by the way, Ethiopia was an important country mentioned in the Bible. A man by the name of Abedlamech was an Ethiopian. Uh, God sent an evangelist out in the desert of Gaza to reach an Ethiopian. And uh, the Ethiopia is important. Ethiopia is important in prophecy. Actually, Ethiopia, if you study Ezekiel, Ethiopia is going to turn against Israel. And so we need this man in Ethiopia to get the gospel down there before, before the Lord should come. So you pray for that, the Lord would work. First Chronicles 17, if your neighbor doesn't have a Bible, or if they're in First Corinthians, instead of First Chronicles, you help them out. Amen? That'll be a blessing there. Scroll down to verse 15. It's a long chapter, but I'm going to try to synthesize it and bring it down to some very, very simple, important thoughts for us tonight. First Chronicles 17, verse 15. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. And David the king came, and he sat before the Lord. And I want you to imagine, as I read this tonight, David is dumbfounded right at this point. He is completely dumbfounded with what he's just been told. He's been given a vision about beyond his lifetime, okay? And the Lord has given a prophecy, as we will tell you a little bit about later on tonight. He's given what we know as the Davidic covenant. Now, those of you new to the scripture or really haven't studied this, you need to earmark seven, chapter 17 of 1 Chronicles and chapter 7 of 2 Samuel because it deals with the importance of the Davidic covenant. And we'll see that in a minute. And so David's dumbfounded. He's very, very like, wow, like, I, gotta, I have to process this, you know. And he says, David the king came and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? And yet this was a small thing in thine eyes, O God. For thou hast also spoken of thy servant's house for a great while to come. And has regarded me according to the state of a man of high degree, O Lord God. What can David speak more to thee for the honor of thy servant? <clears throat> for thou knowest thy servant. O Lord, for thy servant's sake, and according to thy own heart, hast thou done all this greatness in making known all these great things. If God could reveal the rest of your life to you, how would you receive it? Could God even trust you and me to reveal what is going to happen with the rest of our life? God did with David at this moment of time. He said, O Lord, there's none like thee. Neither is there any God beside thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what one nation in the earth is like thy people Israel, whom God went to redeem to be his own people, to make thee a name of greatness and terribleness, by driving out nations from before thy people, whom thou hast redeemed out of Egypt. For thy people, Israel, didst make thine own people forever, and thou, Lord, becamest their God. Therefore now, Lord, let the thing that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant and concerning his house be established forever, and do as thou hast said. Let it be even established that thy name may be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God of Israel, even a God to Israel, and let the house of David thy servant be established before thee. For thou, O God, for thou, O my God, hast told thy servant that thou wilt build him a house. 
Therefore, thy servant has found in his heart to pray before thee. And now, Lord, thou art God and has promised his goodness unto thy servant. Now, therefore, let it please thee to bless the house of thy servant, that it may be before thee forever. For thou blessest, O Lord, and it shall be blessed forever. There's so much there. I call your attention to verse 16. The title of the message and the thrust of the message comes out of verse 16. And I want you to think with me as servants of the Lord of this simple three word question. Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? Oh, Lord God. We leave tonight. You consider all the blessings of God. The opportunities before us. Our question we must ask tonight is who am I? Father, tonight, I'm already blessed just what we've read. Uh, David gave in his prayer one of the great theological messages of all time. Several times he acknowledged that you're God. And Lord, you are God. You're God above. You're God Almighty. And you're God alone. And tonight, as we look at the subject of humility, I humble myself before you this evening. Regardless of what everybody else does tonight, I confess my pride. I confess my haughtiness. And my arrogance. My conceitedness. And ask this evening that the flesh should be crucified. God examine our hearts. For the insidious, insidious, cancerous sin of pride. And above all else tonight, I pray that we would see the, the virtue of humility. And the question David asked. The very first words out of his mouth after he got a vision for his life and way beyond his life. Who am I? Lord, I'm weak and feeble. I'm not sure really what to say and how to say it this evening. I'm not sure if it all come out correctly. I do pray for understanding. I pray for our translators tonight. Thank God for the translators. Would you help them as they translate the word tonight and the message that would be very clear to those who need to hear it in their language. And we pray tonight as we hear it in the English language that God, we would just what's said tonight would prepare our hearts to have a friend day that would magnify Christ. I pray for every man here tonight. Crucify the male ego. Crucify God, some ambitions that are not God, God ordained. Crucify desires, ambitions that Lord are not of you. And this evening we remind ourselves that Lord promotion does not come from the from the south and from the east or from the west. But Lord, promotion comes from above from you. We must realize tonight that we are not, you're not into self-promotion, but Lord, you're into Christ's promotion. And so tonight, we pray that Christ should be lifted up. And we'll thank you for what we'll hear and what will, God, you'll do in our hearts this evening. Holy Spirit, have your way as our teacher. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. David asked the question, who am I? Are you humble? If a poll was taken of the people closest to our lives, how would they rank us in the area of humility? Are we someone who has an ego that is not fulfilled unless it fills up a room? I reminded the story, you've heard me tell this many times, but I'm reminded the story of Dr. Harry Ironside. Dr. Harry Ironside was a longtime pastor of Moody Bible Institute, one of the great preachers in the line of preachers that was in, at Moody Church at the time. 
Harry Ironside, if you're a study of student scriptures, you most likely will either have a set of his commentaries, and which pretty much are all on the Internet now, but uh, you probably will access some things because he just, he's just got some great thoughts. For instance, uh, Harry Ironside has great thoughts. Some of you who, are, who, who kind of get into this, who run into this Calvinism thing, Harry Ironside was the one that gave this thought in the book of Malachi, in his commentary Malachi, and, dis, and, and helping us to understand the, 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 the matter between the, uh, the sovereignty of God and, and free will. And he explained to a man, he said this in his, one of his commentaries, he says, listen, he said, he said, I don't know how to explain this to you, I don't know how to reconcile this to you, but here's what I see. He says, here, imagine you're going to walk through a door, and he says on the, on, the, on the threshold of the door, it says, whosoever will, let him come in. And as soon as you walk through, the, you walk through there, and you've entered in where it says, whosoever will, let him come in, on the back of the threshold, it says, it, t- it talks about elected according to the foreknowledge of God. And, you know, Harry Ironside just had this way of just understanding the Lord. And he wasn't Baptist, but, you know, he, he identified much with independent Baptists. And he identified where we're at the, theologically for the most part. And Harry Ironside just had a good grasp about that. He was not necessarily a strong hyper-Calvinist to that, that degree. I think he could have been a stronger, uh, stronger in the area of evangelism. But I won't call him a, a hyper-Calvinist to that extent. But he had things like that. And Harry Ironside, though, because he had a great mind, he was a very eloquent preacher and a great leader. By the way, Western Book and Track, which used to be the prominent bookstore here in Northern California for Christian literature. I got saved in 1971. Someone introduced me to Western Book as a new Christian just hungering for the things of God and realizing how deficient I was in knowledge. I remember uh, after school as a high schooler, I would take the bus downtown uh, from, from, the Sky, from Oakland Hills where Skyline High School is, and I'd take it downtown to, down to downtown Oakland to Oakland Book Track for one reason. And I did this for five or six years, Brother AJ. I would do that just to spend an hour there, an hour and a half, just to browse through there. And there was high, Harry Ironside's books and FB... I mean, all the great good things. Today, if you go in those kind of bookstores, which, by the way, you shouldn't, most of the stuff there is charismatic or stuff that's regurgitated or it's church growth stuff that you really shouldn't read, which is all pragmatic stuff there. It's just stuff that really would not, really wouldn't help your spirit. You might give you an idea here and there, really won't help your life. But back in those days, they had all the old time stuff that was there and, and things that, you know, you would keep for, for a long period of time. You had Tory's books, Moody's books, things like that there. But I remember going down there, I'd spend time looking there and I'd look at great sections of great authors of the scripture and I just thank the Lord that during those early days of my Christian life that I was able just to get acquainted with those type of things and help with that. But Harry Ironside was a man who was, had a struggle with humility. And let me just say tonight, every man in this room struggles with humility. Okay, every man in this room. And he had, a, he had a long struggle with humility, especially in his study, because the Holy Spirit of God chose to enlighten him with many great things. And one day he just was talking to a friend of his, and Harry Ironside says, you know, I'm just struggling with this matter of my pride and humility. And he says, you know, it's a battle that goes on all the time. And a friend of his made this recommendation. He said, he said Harry, why don't you do this? He says, why don't you put on a signboard and put a scripture verse on the signboard, and we're the sandwich board, and the, and the scripture on there. And he says, why don't you just walk around the streets of Chicago, walk around LaSalle Avenue and Chicago Avenue, places like that. Why don't you walk down the, the streets there of Chicago and just recite and shout out loud this, this, this verse of scripture. Now, I don't know if you get the idea, but wearing a sandwich board and standing out there and repeating no matter what the scripture is, it can be a little bit humiliating at least, okay? And uh, he was doing that, and he'd done that for about an hour. He came back into his office there at Moody, Moody Memorial Church, he took off the sandwich board, put it down, and he said to his secretary, Huh, I bet there's not another man in Chicago who would do a thing like that. 
Here's a man with a pride issue thinking, I did something nobody else did. I'm reminded of Hudson Taylor who went to speak before a large congregation in Australia. Hudson Taylor was up in years there and had proven himself. He studied the, the numbers as far as what Hudson Taylor did. It's remarkable. The number of churches started, the number of converts that came out of that work, and the number of schools that were started, a number of things that he did. And uh, Hudson Taylor was a very well-known quantity as far as the Christian circle was concerned, as far as a man that conquered uh, a lot of odds and accomplished some things in the country China. He was really a pioneer when it came to missions, if you study him there. And he came and they, he was on this conference. He was supposed to speak at this missions conference. And people would come from afar. They traveled from other countries to come to Australia to hear him preach. And uh, they wanted to hear this great, renowned missionary of China talk about how he reached the masses in China and what he did. And the speaker, the moderator for the conference there, got up to introduce him. And he said things like, you know, we just have this illustrious speaker that's coming to speak. And we're just so honored to have him here. And whereas other men probably would have gloated and absorbed all that and felt like, wow, that's really great. Thank you for saying all those kind things about me. Hudson Taylor got up and he kind of shuffled his feet. He stood at the pulpit like this, didn't really know what to say. He felt very backwards. And he started off his sermon by saying this. Dear friends, I am the little servant of an illustrious master. And I'm reminded tonight as we come before this service and we go into this passage tonight, all of us are servants of an illustrious master. We must ask ourselves the question, who am I? Notice in our passage, we're at a critical point in David's life. David is known biographically as a man after God's own heart. And I want you to write that down tonight because that's where, kind of where I'm going to go with that tonight. David is known biographically as a man after God's own heart. Now, sometimes those around the Bible, we hear that, think about that, and we take it for granted. But that is a very, very powerful statement for someone to describe about your Christian life, to say he's a man after God's own heart. Years ago, Dr. Clyde Box, when he was alive, Dr. Box had asked him about a certain preacher that he had preached for. And I said, how would you characterize that particular preacher? I didn't know him. I knew about him. We'd met at conference and shaken hands. And Dr. Box, this is about probably 15, 16 years ago. This is how he characterized that man. He said, Brother Fong, he said, the only thing I could tell you about that man is that he really loves the Lord. Now, every time I see that preacher, that's the only thing in my mind is just the thought that Brother Box gave me that he really loves the Lord. And then I'd asked one, a missionary that was sent out of his church one time, that one time we supported. I asked that missionary, I said, hey, how would you characterize this preacher per se? He said, and he thought about it for a minute. He said, Brother Fong, he's a man, I could just tell you this, he's a man who goes after souls. Now, there's two things I, I, I think about every time I see this preacher. Number one, I've been told that he loves God, and that's what I think about. Number two, I've been told he goes after souls, and I think about it. And by the way, I've watched it, man, for about 15 years, and he does exactly both of those things. He loves the Lord, and he goes after souls. And here's one of my thoughts to you tonight. David was a man after God's own heart. He was a man who God could say he identifies with who I am. He identifies with my goals. He identifies with my vision. He identifies with what I want to do. Now, a lot of men will get up and do their thing. They'll ride on their pony. They'll get up and build their kingdom. But it's not about you and me building our kingdom. It's about the fact we must build the kingdom of God. And so when we think about David, I want you to consider some things now. David here in First Chronicles 17 is between 37 and 38 years of age. Now, we've got a lot of men in this room, a lot of good men in this room, they're in their mid-30s, a lot of men in their 40s. You guys are at the prime of your life. You're, one of the, you're, at, a, you're at a great point in your life right now. And you're going to not hit your peak probably until you're in your 50s and so forth there. But you're at the place in life where things are happening. Maturity is set in. You're getting recognition. You're dealing with mature people. Deals are being made. Deals are happening. There are lots of things go on when you're in your 40s and, and your 30s and 40s that are outstanding things. I hope you keep a diary of those things to give glory to God. And David's 37 and 38. He's ruled the kingdom for seven 
seven years. It's been a united kingdom now for about one or two years. David has just brought back the ark of God. He did something no one had done for almost a hundred years. The hundred years, the ark of God was in the house of this other, this man. Uh, that we talked about last week, uh, Benadab was in his house and he brought it back and the ark of God had been in the house of Obadidim. Now he's brought it into Jerusalem. David is at a place where the ark of God, he constructed a tent. You have to read in chapter 16 about this. He constructs a tent and he puts the ark of God inside there. And David gets up one day and as he did many times, he looked out his window and David did a lot of contemplation. He looked out his window. He would look at people. He would look at things and he was looking out the window and that particular day as the wind was blowing, he looked as the wind was blowing on that tent that was outside, that tent that was the house, the tabernacle for God, for the ark of God. And he saw as the wind was blowing on that, a thought crossed his mind, a thought that convicted him, a thought that changed his vision for his life, a thought that consumed him. He says, why is it that I get to dwell in a house made out of cedar? And by the way, a man by the name of, I think, Tyrus built the house for him. This man, this man built the house from, from, uh, that built for him. He built this house for him. And, and he's thinking, why is it that I get to build, I get to live in a house made out of cedar and the, and the ark of God, the presence of God, <coughs> is inside of a basic simple tent. And that really convicted him that what he was living in was better than where the presence of God, at least what they identified with, was there. And David started thinking about things. And you have to bear in mind, for 37 years, David has lived his life, well, actually not for 37 years, but probably for the last 20, 25 years, he had lived his life identifying himself as a man after God's own heart. David was a great man of faith. Read about that in 1 Samuel 17, when he confronts the giant Goliath. David was a man of great character. Even when Saul turned against him, he never turned against Saul. David was a man who exhibited great grace. David was a man who exhibited great courage. David was a man who showed who he really was in his fears, that he poured out his heart to God. We get a sense of the character of David by reading through all of the book of Psalms and correlating the different Psalms to different incidences in his life. We see a man who loves God, who's got a great passion for God. He's the man that wrote, as the deer panted after the water brook, so panted my heart after thee, O God. He's the one who wrote out in Psalms 46 verse 1, the Lord, he talked about the sword, the Lord is my refuge and strength a very present help in the time of need he's the one that wrote in Psalms 27 verse 1, the Lord is my light and salvation whom shall I fear, of whom shall I be afraid, I mean he wrote these great Psalms that we, we, we endear ourselves to, that touch our lives and, and we're encouraged by, when David's the one that wrote in Psalms 23 verse 1 the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, I mean he wrote these Psalms that are so endeared to the hearts of God's people but here's a man, when we consider all those things, he's at a critical stage in his life. The ark of God has come back. The kingdom has been unified. He's just trying to get things together. And right at that moment of time, instead of thinking about how great his kingdom is going to be, how much he's going to enlarge his army, how much he's going to add to this and add to that, what kingdoms he's going to conquer, what he's going to do with the Philistines, what he's going to do with the Amalekites, instead of thinking about all things, the greatest thought on David's mind at that moment of time is, why is it that I get to live in a house made out of cedar and the, and the ark of God is resting in a tent? That bothered him. That bothered him that he, that he was more elevated than God was elevated. It bothered him that God was not, that he was, he was in this house of cedar and that God's presence was found inside this tent there. And so, and David comes to this conclusion and David says, he, he say, we see some things that unfold in the first 15, 16 verses here about David's life that leads him in verse 16 to saying, who am I? Would you notice some things very quickly as we get into a long introduction, it's kind of Brother Norris would say, in a short part of the message. I want you to see some things about what leads up to David's question, who am I? 
The first thing we see in verse 1 is David experiences a peaceful downtime. The Bible says in verse 1, Now it came to pass... As David sat in his house, that David said to Nathan the prophet, Lo, I dwell in a house of cedars, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord remaineth under curtains. Now, when you read 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel says it was a time when the Lord gave David rest from his enemies. David was experiencing a peaceful downtime, experiencing a time where there was no turmoil, there was no unrest, there was no trouble, none of that. Jesus said this in Matthew eleven twenty eight: Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Rest is the pursuit of the Christian life. Rest, as we read Hebrews, is a picture of capturing the promises of God, of claiming our inheritance. Rest is what Joshua did throughout all the book of Joshua as they claimed the inheritance of God. Rest is being in the center of God's will. Rest is doing what God wants us to do do. Rest is having perfect peace in our heart. Rest is serving Jesus Christ. Rest is not rest in the sense that some preachers would say it means physical rest. Yes, he did experience physical rest, but it meant more than that. It's experiencing in his heart that he was at peace with things in his life. The Bible says in Isaiah 26 3, thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusted in thee. The psalmist wrote in Psalms 119 verse 165 great peace have they which love thy law and nothing shall offend them. Now, we can have lives where we are just very, very busy, and we do. And we're running from one project to the other, and one sermon to the other, and one thing after the other. And we can just find that we just we need a moment in time. We just need to get some rest, and we do every now and then. We can feel like, for some of us, as we get to Sunday night, after the last amen is said, and we get in our cars and get home, we take our ties off, we take our jackets on, our shoes off, and we sit down for just a moment, and we think... Wow, it just feels good just to rest for just a minute. That's all good. But the rest I'm talking about tonight is a spiritual rest, a spiritual downtime that we need every now and then, where we need to pull apart into a desert place as Jesus did, and to pull apart lest we fall apart. And we pull apart so that we can replenish our souls and realize that we need to take back in what we've given out. The realizing though our outward man may perish, the inward man is renewed day by day. It's claiming that promise that they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings of eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. All of us need times of respite to replenish our soul and to take time to build up our faith and realizing our work schedule and our family schedule and our church schedules and all the things going on can make us so busy and so weary. We've left the Lord out and we need to replenish our souls every now and then. And David had a season of respite. And during the season of respite, notice in verse 1, he wasn't thinking about his kingdom. He wasn't thinking about the next goal. He wasn't thinking about the next friend day. He wasn't thinking about the next campaign. He was thinking about the fact he was living in a house made of cedar and the ark of God was dwelling in curtains. He was bothered by the fact that he had not given his best to the Lord. That was bothersome. David was experiencing a peaceful downtime. But notice in verse 2, we see David's passionate desire. His confidant, the man of God in his life, is a man by the name of Nathan. Nathan was so important to him, David had a son later on that he named Nathan. Nathan was the man of God who had the difficult task of confronting David, saying, Thou art the man. Nathan was the one that brought the word of God to him. David never did wrong to the man of God. David never did wrong to Nathan. 
He could trust Nathan with his life. He could trust Dave, Nathan with his dreams. And he asked Nathan to come to see him. And he's talking to Nathan. And he, and, he, and he shares with Nathan what's on his heart. Lo, I dwell in a house of cedars, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord remaineth under curtains. And so Nathan, Nathan's response, he said, well, this is a good man. This is no wonder God called him a man after his own heart. Nathan didn't even think, think about praying about the matter. He just said, well, you know, king, he says, you have the money. You have the manpower. You have the connections outside the kingdom. He said to him, notice in verse 3, and this is the future message there on verse 2. He says, go and do all that's in thy heart, for God is with thee. He basically so you thought, well, you know, David came to ask me for what my thoughts are. And it's, it's a God-centered ambition. It was a good ambition. It was ambition to do something about building a house for God. I mean, that was David's heart. That was his desire. He says, man, I want to build. I need to build something for God. I've got to do something for the Lord there. And he says, and, and you know, money was not a matter to him. And manpower was not a matter to him. And all those things. All he cared about was building something for God. And the, and the prophet Nathan said, go and do all that's in his heart. Listen, he had a great desire for the house of God. Listen to what David said. In Psalms 27, 4, one thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and acquire in his temple. I mean, David had his great vision of his life, more than anything else, was to be in the house of God. That was his vision. Listen, what to God, that would just be our desire one day a week. What to God, that be our desire three times a week. Just decide to come to church and be in the house of the Lord. Behold his beauty. Hey, listen, don't take for granted everything that's here. We put out the plea to you. Let's take care of God's house this week. Let's get it ready for friend day. But not just for friend day. Let's do it all the time. Amen. Not just not let the staff do it. Not let the deacons do it. Hey, everybody do it because all of us, this is our building. Not the staff's building. Not the deacon's building. It's our building because we're the church. So you look at here, David had his passion desire for the church and he longed to be with God's people and he longed to be where God's presence was. He said, surely, he said, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He loved to talk about God's house. We read Psalms 84 and that's the, that's the psalm about the house of the Lord there. But notice something else here. We see David. Here in this, these early days, a peace, he has a, a peaceful downtime. We see his passion desire, but notice we see a painful denial. Nathan didn't even think anything about the fact. He just said, go ahead and build the house of God. And then in verse four, uh, verse three, God came to Nathan in verse three and four. And it came to pass that same night. The word of the Lord came to Nathan. I've had this happen. You tell somebody to do something. God says, nope, you got to go humble yourself and go back and correct it. You spoke before you asked me what my mind was on it. And uh, he said, he said, he came to him. He says, go and tell David, my servant, thus saith the Lord. Notice, thou shall not. Give me a house to dwell in. Not about you, but if I was David at that moment in time, knowing my sinful flesh, I'd feel like, Lord, what are you thinking? Don't you understand, Lord? I want to build a house for you. And God said, no, I'm not going to let you build a house for me. That's not what I have in mind for you. He says, you're not going to do it. And we know about that later on because David was a bloody man who fought many wars. And I think the idea that he was a bloody man also pours over in the fact that he had Uriah, the Hittite, killed on the battle lines and he was a murderer then. I think that was foremost of the things that God had in mind. The fact that he had, he had blood, another man's blood on his hands. He just said, you know what? I just can't have you do that. You've got this, you've got this, this stigma about you. You've got this, uh, you've got this, uh, these things that are about your life that really just kind of tarnish you a little bit there. And I'm going to do it another generation. I'm going to do it through your son. I'm going to do it during a time of rest, not during a time of battle. And But God had something bigger for him. But God had to tell him no. And every now and then, we have to realize that sometimes God has to say no to us. We saw that this morning. We talked about Paul. Paul thought God wanted him to go to Galatia and Persia on the second mission tour. And God three times told him no. The Spirit forbade him not. Listen, I'm going to remind you tonight, for especially as new Christians, God denials are just as much his will for us as his approvals. But love God, you're going to go to Ethiopia. Some things, some things God's going to say no on. 
You're going to think me and my wife have planned this out. We talked to our home pastor. We've prayed this out. And God's going to say no. And we've had that happen many times. I still remember the first time we made application to City of San Leandro. And we went to them. And we spent $70,000 in architecture and other consulting fees. And presented a very elaborate plan, as they would call it there. And we sat down with them, presented the plan. And they told us at the end of an hour, No! I've been to houses, you've been to houses where initially people said, no, Brother Will, I've told this story many times. I remember the first time my wife and I tried to go after Brother Will Ho's mother to get her invited to church. And she said, no, I've gone after some of your family members. They said, no, but guess what? Over time, God changes that. God's working. And sometimes we have to remind ourselves that maybe it might be a timing issue. It might be a, it may, it may be something that maybe God, we're not in a place where God can use us for them. That's Okay. But we must remind ourselves God's denials are not are, are just as much his will for us as they are, are his approvals. I read the story about a family in Scotland that got approval to immigrate from Scotland over to America. They made plans and provisions. They got all their paperwork done and they were so happy about doing this. And they got everything ready together. They packed and planned. They bought their ticket to board a ship and to board the ship to cross the Atlantic from, from England all the way over to America. They were so excited about this man and his four kids. They were so excited about doing this. And listen, a, a week or two before that they were supposed to board the ship and go ahead with this, his son was out playing and somebody's dog came out and bit his son on the leg. And it wasn't a bad bite, but because his son was bitten, they had this, they had these health laws in England that time that basically they had to do something the equivalent of a yellow tape. And basically they had to put a, they had to put a notice on his home. This boy was bitten by a dog and no one was to come in contact with him and they were to stay quarantined for two weeks. Well, this happened to be one week before they were supposed to leave for England. And so they had one week to prepare and then they would carry over to the week that the, the ship would leave. And this man tried to fight this every way he could with the health department, city government. But they said, no, we've, we've labeled you. We branded you. You're somebody. Your son got bit. We're sorry. This is our health law. You can't make it. And this man was very upset. And he kept pleading and pleading and pleading up to the very day the ship was supposed to leave the docks in England to make his way to America. And he's so upset because they paid all this money. They couldn't get a refund on their ticket. They paid all this money. They were looking forward to going. They were looking forward to starting a new life over in America. I mean, they had dreamed about us and dreamed about it thought about it and none of this was going to materialize and he went to the pier by himself and he watched his people boarded the ship and they got on and he was angry with God and he looked up to heaven and he actually started cursing and got upset about things it was just so mad he says God this isn't fair Lord why are you doing this to me why are you doing this to my wife and so forth so forth so forth and he started just kicking dust up in the air like this and he went home he was just so angry and his wife said honey calm down he said you know there'll be other times he said no this is not right God did this this is wrong Just a few days later, on April 15th, they got word that the Titanic had gone down. And 1,500 people lost their lives. That was the ship he was supposed to be on. This man from England, as he got that word, his whole attitude changed. He realized God's denials are just as much his will for us as his approval. God knows. We see David having to deal with a painful denial. God, the prophet Nathan had to come and tell him, thou shall not build me a house to live in. But notice we see a providential dynasty. Verses 5 to 17, God gives him a much bigger revelation. Verses 5 to 17, he says, no, you're not going to build me a house. But he says that house will be built in a successive generation. It will be built during your son's generation. And God goes on to explain to him, and I don't have a lot of time on this, but God goes on to explain to him. He says, listen, David, did I ask you to build me a house? 
He said, David, have I ever complained about being about my presence being in a tent? He said, David, did I ever complain about the fact that notice in verse five, he says, for have I not dwelt in a house since the day that I brought up Israel unto this day? But I've gone from tent to tent, from tabernacle to another. He said, wherefore, have I walked with all Israel, spake I a word to any of the, all the judges of Israel whom I commanded to feed my people, saying, why have you not built me a house cedar? He said, look, I've never complained about it. I've never complained about where I've been. I've never complained about this situation. He says, David, I appreciate the nobility of your heart. But he said, David, I've never complained complain about this. Now, David goes on God goes on and explains to David. He says, look, David, I want you to understand where you where you're at in life. He said, I took you from the sheep coats. I took you out of the hills of Bethlehem, Judah. I brought you down. I took you out from being a shepherd, a nobody. And I put you on the throne and I made you a somebody. You've got prominence that came because of me. You became a leader because of me. You're a great soldier because of me. He says, I told I chose you. Notice verse seven. From the sheep coast, because I needed a man who'd been shepherding to shepherd the hearts of Israel. And when you read through Psalms as the testimonies given about David, that's exactly the idea we're given about a shepherd. And notice what he says in verse seven. I took thee from the sheep coat, even from following the sheep, that thou shouldest be ruler over my people Israel. He said, look it, for the last 40 years before you came to the throne, my people were hurt. My people had no guidance. My people had no leadership. Saul was not, did not shepherd the hearts of the people. He did not feed their hearts. He did not love them. He did not care for them. He was very insecure in his way. He said, listen, the people need right now for this generation a man who's got a shepherd's heart, who cares for them, loves them, and will lead them along the way. He said, you're the man, David. You're the man that I've chosen. He said, now, David, I want you to understand something. I've got something bigger in store. There will be a house built, but the house won't be built during your time. The house for God will be built by your son Solomon. But bigger than that, he said, David, something bigger than that's going to happen. I'm going to tell you right now, there will be a dynasty that I'm going to give you. He said, it'll be a kingdom that will be forever and forever and ever. And in this Davidic covenant that David's being given, David's being told of something far reaching, something beyond him. David's being told that the messianic line of Jesus Christ would come through David. Through, through David. I mean, do you imagine for just a minute, David is now thinking, wait a minute, Wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm a Hebrew and I trace my roots back to Abraham. Now you're telling me that the entire dynasty, the kingdom of David, will proceed long after me and it'll be a kingdom that will last forever and forever. Look at verse 10. And since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people, moreover, I will subdue all thy enemies. Furthermore, I will, I will, I, I tell thee that the Lord will build thee a house. Then he goes down in verse 11. And it shall come to pass when thy days be expired, that thou must go to be with thy fathers, that I'll raise up thy seed after thee, which shall be of thy sons. And I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build me a house. And notice verse 12. And I will establish his throne forever. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the Davidic throne. He's talking about the the kingdom of David. And he says, and I will be his father and he shall be my son and I will not take my mercy away from him. And I took it I, and as I took it from him that was before thee, but I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever and his throne shall be established forever. Hey, beloved, when you think about the Davidic covenant, he's explaining to us everything that the prophets talk about from that point forward. For instance, we don't have time to go into all of it, but notice Jeremiah 23, 5, the prophet Jeremiah in the midst right before Israel would be be taken captive. He spoke about the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant that Jesus would be what, what, that, that Jesus would come from the Davidic line. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch and a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. During notice Isaiah chapter nine, verse seven, during the reign of King Ahaz, who was the, the father of, of King Hezekiah, he said this of the increase of his government and peace. There shall be no end upon the throne of 
David and upon his kingdom uh, uh, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth forever and ever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And that's a way of saying what I've spoken is not going to be changed. It's a sealed deal. The heirs apparent will come to Now, you have to remember one thing. The, the Davidic line. As far as far as uh, stopped with Zedekiah, but that didn't mean, uh, excuse me, the kingly line stopped with Zedekiah, but the Davidic line continued. And we find that in Matthew chapter one. So notice how Matthew one starts off. I explained this to one of our discipleship classes recently. Notice Matthew one one. The genealogy of, of Jesus is given. We don't have to worry about where Jesus is traced humanly. Luke takes care of that because Luke explains Jesus Christ as the son of man who became the son of God. But Matthew explains to us the king of the Jews and as a king, he didn't have to prove his human heritage. What he did have to prove was his Hebrew lineage and he had to prove his kingly heritage. So notice in Matthew 1, 1, it starts off by saying the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. Notice the son of David, the son of Abraham. That one statement right there for Christmas time vouches and validates the fact we serve a risen savior. We have a king of kings and a Lord of lords. It came, he came from the son. He's a son of David and a son of Abraham. Acts chapter two, verses 29. This is what Peter said on that first great message he preached. There on the day of Pentecost, men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried and his sepulchers with us on the day. And he says, don't worship David. David's dead. But David's kingdom continues. And he says, therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God is sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. Then notice Romans 1, 3. And I can say so many verses, but notice Romans 1, 3. Paul, as he writes to the church at Rome, and he wrote this letter probably around the time that he went down to Troas there in Acts chapter 20. It says there, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David, according to the flesh. God told David of a wonderful dynasty, a dynasty to come, a great dynasty. And this blew David's mind. He thought, well, you know, kings come and go. And after I'm gone, I don't know what's going to happen. And he's just trying to make provision for the next king, which would be his son. And God blows his mind just totally, just gives him a, just gives him a revelation that just says, wow, David, there's something bigger that's going to happen through all this. And so David now is given what we call the Davidic covenant. So what is David's reaction to all this? What is David's response to all this? Notice, this gets us into our message now. Notice the priceless demeanor. We see David's reaction to all this. We see David, what he says there. Notice in verses 16 to 27. He is in shock. He's dumbfounded. He's in complete amazement what God says here. And David's trying to get his arms around the fact that he would have a kingdom that would be powerful, a kingdom that would be perpetual, and a kingdom that would be propitious. Because to understand this, that the Messiah would come through that lineage and prove that he's king. And this king would give his life as a ransom for many, that he would die for the sins of all the world. And so David, the first words out of David's mouth, now after Nathan gives this great prophetic revelation, this great understanding of a dynasty to come, the first words out of David's mouth are, Who am I, O Lord? Have we ever thought about the question? Who do we think we are? Who cares how much money you got? Who cares what your position is? Who cares how many followers you have on Facebook, which I would not pay attention to that if I were you. Who cares what you tweeted? Who cares? Really, the reality is when you think about the goodness and grace of God, who am I? Who am I? Who am I that God would let me be a pastor? Who am I that God would let me serve him? 
Who am I that God has blessed me with 60 years of good health? Who am I that I get to lead people to Christ? I get to tell people about Jesus. Who am I that I get to preach the word of God? Who am I that I get to serve the King of kings and Lord of lords? Who am I that I get to be married to my wife and have the children that I have and have the greatest Kate church in all the world at Heritage Baptist Church with the brothers and sisters that I love? Who am I that God would bless us with a church that's English speaking, Chinese speaking, Spanish speaking? Who am I that our church would support 130 missionaries? Who am I and who are you? David has this demeanor like, I'm not even sure if I'm supposed to be on the throne. God, just you just told me some things I didn't really, I really was not expecting to hear. Who am I? Very quickly, we need to close. Would you look at three things? Number one, notice the struggle. Would you consider with me tonight the noxious struggle? We are in a constant battle with pride. Pride is the way of the world. First John 2, 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the father, but of the world. We're proud of our assets. We're proud of our acumen. We're proud of our accomplishments. We're proud of all of those things. We're proud of our acclaim. We're proud of those things. Who, who am I? Who am I? Pride is deceptive. Obadiah, verse 3. The pride of thy heart has deceived thee, that thou dwellest in the cliffs of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, who shall bring me down to the ground? Pride is a deadly sin. Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. I want you to consider with me very quickly tonight how the battle for humility and against pride rages in every person. Now, these are not alliterated, so you listen very carefully tonight. Would you just listen tonight for just a moment? Let the Holy Spirit speak to you about, do you re- does this resonate with you tonight, as it resonates with me this evening, about the battle for, for humility and the battle against pride? Number one, first of all, we think we're better than we really are. We think we're better than we really are. Romans 12, 3 says, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Can I tell you something tonight that really bothers me as a pastor? It really bothers me when people say, why do I need to learn that? I know that already. That really bothers me. You are saying when you make a statement like that, that you're above the word of God. You're saying a statement like that, that simplicity, that you're above simplicity. Listen, Jesus was a simple preacher and Jesus had a simple ministry, but Jesus had a very profound influence on a lot of people. I want to remind you tonight, it's the most simple of ministries that have the most profoundest influence. You say, how do you know that, Pastor? I just take you over to Elo Elo, to Rick Martin's ministry, and you'll see a very simple preacher who's got a profound ministry. There's one new church being born every five days through the through fruit of Rick Martin. We think we're higher than we really are. We think more of ourselves than we really should. We think we're better than we are. Number two, we crave for the praise of man. Don't be honest with me. You do and I do. You want the praise of man. Saul was angry that the people praised David more than him. Conquering David. Saul's looking good. You know, David made him look good. You know, he carried the head of the the giant with him. And he's walking to the city. And the maidens come out. They're just excited. The Philistines are not going to conquer us. And they're excited. The 40-day standoff was accomplished. And all they know is one thing. That we've got a new hero in town. And the the ladies of the town were not being malicious. They're singing chorus. They said, Saul has slain his thousands. Saul said, yep. I sure did. 
I sure, he didn't do a thing, amen. But he used to pat himself, yep, I sure did. Slay, the Saul has slain his thousand. Yep, here I am. I'm the seven foot tall king of Israel. He slain his thousand. But before he could say, look at me, then they went on and said, but David has slain his 10,000. He went, who, 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 who? Who went to praise of men? I must be honest. You got plaques and wards and things. Where are they? Proverbs 27, 2 says, let another man praise thee, not thy own mouth, a stranger, not thy own lips. Hey, thirdly, our nature is to compare ourselves to other people. Let's face it. One of the, one of the biggest challenges, struggles we have in our faith is comparing ourselves. I mean, that's a missionary struggle. That's a pastor struggle. That's an evangelist struggle. That's a Christian worker struggle. That's a, no matter what you work on, this is a Sunday school department. We like to compare ourselves with everybody else. We like to do percentages and be analytical about, about this and about that. And we want to compare, uh, images and things of that nature there. And I'm just saying tonight, our nature is to compare ourselves with other people. We make comparison and makes, we have, make comparisons and statements like this. I'm not as bad as he. Him. I do more than you or I work harder than you. Listen, hypocrites do the same thing. Listen to what the hypocrite said in Luke chapter 18. The Pharisee, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all I possess. Listen, we're good at confessing the sins of other people. But when it comes to our sins, we kind of quietly just put it on the side so it's not brought up there. How about his gossip? How about his pride? How about his covetousness, you know? And I'm just saying tonight, we have to be very careful. Our pride works within us, and it's a battle with humility because we want to, we want to compare ourselves to other people. Listen to 2 Corinthians 10, 12. For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. You know what he's saying there? Making comparisons is not a very wise thing to do. In other words, the, the, the converse of that is saying this. They make comparisons. We are actually showing how foolish we are. That's what he's saying. Fourthly, notice this. We are more in love with ourselves than we are with God. That's why we have to struggle. Now, Ephesians 5 tells very simply, especially in the, in the context of marriage, we, we want to abuse our bodies and we take care of ourselves. And a man, as a man loves his own body, he should take care of his own wife. In other words, a man would not self-destruct himself naturally, then he should not be destructive to his marriage. But notice, we're so in love with ourselves and our accomplishments and our acumen and our gains and all of these things and our accumulations that we have a tendency to be more in love with ourselves. But I might remind you tonight, 2 Timothy 3. This and also then the last days perilous times shall come for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous and boasters and proud and blasphemous, disobedient to parents, unthankful and holy. And I call your attention. The very first thing Paul said about a perilous society and perilous times, men shall be lovers of their own side. We're, 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 we're characterized as a society by narcissistic self-promotion, self-praise. I'm just saying tonight, you know, maybe nobody here is guilty of this, but there's, that doesn't mean there's not the propensity that we can fall down that pathway there. It's a noxious struggle. It's a battle we fight all the time. Notice quickly, we see a second thing. Notice David understands that because it's, it's all this is being revealed in, in the first 15 verses. He's trying to get his arms around all that, that, that Nathan has told him about this kingdom to come, about the Davidic covenant and a kingdom that will be forever and the messianic line would proceed from there. He's trying to understand now what God would, uh, the, the, how God is working through this situation to bring the Messiah into the world. And David's now getting much more of a revelation than all the patriarchs before him did. And so David gets his arms around and he asks a question. He says, who am I, O Lord God? Who am I to receive such information? And he's saying here, he's reflecting to us the need of uh, uh, what I call a needy spirit. Now, notice, if you would, tonight, David, if we look at verses 16 to 27, David shows us 
how it is possible to win over pride with the spirit of humility, how to have an ongoing spirit of humility. I'm going to tell you right now tonight, it's a battle. It's a struggle. 30 seconds from now, it's going to be a struggle. 30 minutes from now, it's going to be a struggle. 30 days from now, it's going to be a struggle. How do you battle with, with, with this matter? How, how do we have this kind of spirit like David had when we can say constantly, who am I that God would do such a thing? Notice number one in verses seven to eight, we see a past reflection. God said to him, now therefore, thus shalt thou say to my servant David, thus saith the Lord of hosts. Now God, you know what God's saying there to the Lord of hosts? He's talking about Jehovah, Jehovah Sabaoth. That's, you know what God is saying there? David, I want to remind you one thing before you say anything. He says, you're a great commander, but I, I'm in charge of your army. He says, I'm commander of your army. I'm the general, not you. I'm in charge, not you. And so he says, thus saith the Lord of hosts. I took thee from the sheep coat, even from following the sheep, that thou shouldest be ruler over my people Israel. You know what he's saying? David, I put you there. David, I'm trusting you. And then he said in verse 8, And I have been with thee whithersoever thou hast walked, and have cut off all thy enemies from before thee. And David now, he's going, he's going backwards and thinking about all the last 20 years, how God preserved him from the hand of Saul. And he says, I made thee a name like the name of the great men that are in the earth. He said, David, you didn't elevate yourself. I gave you a name. He said, I brought you to place. Now, let me give you some thoughts about this past reflection. Number one, don't forget who saved you. Don't walk around like you saved yourself. Jesus saved us. Don't forget where God took us from. He took us out of the miry clay and put our feet on a solid rock. He gave us a song to sing. And listen, we need to remind us of where God took us from. That's what God's telling David here. I took you from the sheep. Listen, you are nobody. You are in the, listen, you are, you're considered a, you're in the worst job of all the nation. I took you from being a shepherd. I took you from obscurity and brought you to where you're at. Don't forget who saved you. Don't forget where God took you from. Hey, don't forget God is the one who forgave us from all of our sins. I think sometimes we have a tendency to uh, downplay the forgiveness of sins. We treat it like a magic, like, like a magic wipe off, eraser, you just erase it. Hey, it's more of that. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. Don't forget, we have no gifts or talents apart from God. Don't forget that all of us are replaceable. I'm reminded of a story that happened years ago about a baseball, a famous baseball player by the name of Ralph Kiner. Ralph Kiner played for the Pittsburgh Pirates and he had one of those, well, a very stellar year, which back in that time, when those old days, they, you know, a guy hit over 30 home runs. That was very astounding. And that particular Ralph Kiner hit 37 home runs. Ralph Kiner had a manager by the name of Branch Rickey. And the, and the Pirates weren't doing so good that year. And he went to Branch Rickey. And Ralph Kiner went to Branch Rickey. He said, hey, he, he said, hey, coach. He said, listen, I've had a great year. I've hit 37 homers. I want to ask you a favor. He said, what is that? He said, what do you want to ask, Kiner? He says, I want you to give me a raise. He said, I deserve a raise. I just think that I've, I've put in my share. I've done my thing. I deserve a raise. And this is what, this is what the manager came back to him. He said, uh, he, Ricky asked him this question. He said, hey, uh, let me ask you this question, Kiner. Where did we finish? And he said, well, uh, we finished last. And then the manager said to him, well, we can finish last without you. <laughs> you know what? God can build this church without you and me. Who do we think we are? Who am I? Can I remind you, that's exactly what Jesus told five of the churches of Asia Minor in Revelations 2 and 3. If you don't repent, I will take your candlestick out. I can do without you. Oh, you don't understand. I'm a great preacher. No, you're not. You're just a mouthpiece. Just a mouthpiece. 
I'm, I'm fearful, Brother Lovegrove, for the generation preachers coming up, young men right now, that have no identification with the heroes of the past. Brother Chapel and I were talking about the millennial trend and the trend a lot of, a lot of guys you know of and I know of that are going down a different pathway right now. There's idea days and all these kind of things like that. We're talking about this, Tom, Brother Norris. I said, guys, I said, I'll just tell you from my take from this. I've, I've talked with some of these guys. I've tried to help them along the way, try to encourage them. But here's the basic problem. They have no identification with the he was the past. I drop Hudson. I, if I drop the name of Curtis Hudson, they said so. If I, if I drop Lee Robertson's name, then they say so. If I bring up the name of John Rice, they say so. I mean, I bring up names of the past of great men of God who were stellar men of God, holy men of God that served God and did the great works of God. They have no identification with that because they're all into pragmatism. They're all about themselves. And, 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 they're, and they're reading books about overinflated church builders and pragmatists that are teaching those things. And I'm just saying today, as we look at these situations, who am I? Who am I? God can build a bus route without you. God can build a Sunday school class without you. We're going to have a good friend day, whether you participate or not. It's going to be a great friend. You say, well, pastor, will it be a good day if we only have one friend? Listen, we had one friend and one sinner got saved. It was a great friend day. Yeah. yeah. Every service is a great service. I'm not going to get in this number saying, well, wait, man, we had 20 visitors today. We had to... Listen, we did have a great day. But I'm going to tell you what. If we didn't have 20 visitors and we were 20 less, we still had a great day. Because you know what? Me and God showed up. Our thought should be, who am I, O oh Lord? past reflection notice a present reality now i've been with thee verse 8 i've been with thee whithersoever thou hast walked and have cut off all thy enemies from before thee and have made thee a name like the name of the great men that are on the earth man that's scary he says i gave i put you on the marquee son and I will, adorn a, I will ordain a place for my people Israel and will plant them and they shall dwell in their place and shall be moved no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness waste them anymore. As at the beginning. God is talking about protection. God is talking about planting them. God is talking about giving them a home. God is talking about giving them permanence. God is talking about giving them rest there. And he says, and since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people, moreover, I will subdue all thy enemies. Furthermore, I will tell thee, the Lord will build thee a house. Now notice the things God is saying here. Everything in this present reality is about what God is doing for David. May I remind us, that's why thanksgiving is just as important as intercession. Because we have to remind ourselves every now and then. Let's remind ourselves of everything God has given to us. Who gave you your brain? Who gave you your abilities? Who put you where you're at there? And so notice some things God says. He says, David, look, I've been with thee. Look, David, I've cut off thine enemies from before thee. Look, David, I've made thee a name like the name of great men. Look, David, I will subdue thy enemies. And so David goes on, notice in verses 20 to 27, David proceeds to praise and magnify the Lord. He just says, well, man, this is great. You know, he's getting all the things. He didn't go off and start writing his vision chart, writing out his 10-year mission plan. He didn't do any of that. You know why? Because God said, I've got your future all planned out. You know what David did? He did what we need to do when God, we had a great inspiration for God. A great inspiration for God means we should get on our faces before God and say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. And he was praising God and magnifying him, Lord. And if you look at that here in verses 20, 27, it's one of the greatest passages of Scripture that deals with someone exalting God and, and, and acknowledging God for his greatness and his goodness. And he talks about that. And in verse 24, he said he wanted God to be magnified more than anybody else. Notice verse 24. He says here, Let it be even be established that thy name may be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God of Israel, even a God to Israel. And let the house of David thy servant be established before thee. Now listen tonight. If we would just go out this week for friend day and just say we're just doing this because we want god to be magnified i think we'll see greater results on a friend day than we just said would you come to my friend day 
know what the present reality is? It's John 3, 27. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. All of our gifts, our good gifts, and perfect gifts, which came down from the Father of lights, in whom there's no variableness, neither shadow of turning. You know what the present reality is? It's John 3, 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. John Flavel, so those of you who are students of Scripture, you might want to get some of John Flavel's writings. They, they, this and they'll, they'll make you stop and think and provoke your, your heart a little bit there. But he said this, They that know God will be humble, and they that know themselves cannot be proud. That's a great thought there. But notice a prospective responsibility. But you notice in verses 20 to 27, at least eight times or more, David refers to himself as thy servant. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. God just told him you're going to be a king. Whose kingdom is going to be forever. David's response to that. Thy servant. Thy servant. Thy servant. There's only one way to start. And only one way to finish the Christian life. That's as a servant. In Philippians chapter 2. We're reminded of this so often. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I noticed something very interesting. Obedience must precede faith, and obedience must precede humility. How can we be humble? We have a we have a noxious struggle. So how do we how do we get this needy spirit? Well, you write these things down, please, tonight. How to be humble? Let me give you some thoughts. Number one, deflect all praise back to the Lord. Any praise that you get, and we will get praise, and it's proper to praise other people. Proverbs twenty seven two tells it. But deflect all the praise back to God. Be like David did in in, in Acts chapter fourteen. Uh, uh, Acts chapter fourteen. David, not David. Uh, Paul did. When, when he healed that man that was crippled and the people came out and they, they called, called him, they started bringing flowers out and carts out and they started calling him and Barnabas gods. He said, no, 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 give the glory back to God. Deflect all the praise back to the Lord. Take no credit for what you did. Your spirit should always be, I could do better than this next time. I'm a little worried. I had some men that have been in our pulpit. Now, sometimes I'll, and I try to be gracious as much as possible. And I try to be gracious. Hey, thank you. That was a great message you gave. And that was great to this and that. And sometimes I get a little worried when a man says, well, thank you very much. I appreciate you telling me that. Instead of, well, praise God. It's from God. It's from the Lord. And anything we are is all from God. I'm just saying tonight, number one, we must deflect all praise back to the Lord. Listen, one of the greatest things we can do accountability-wise, wives, is help your husband when he starts getting proud. And say, let's give the glory back to God. Number two, instead of being critical, because it's easy to be critical. Praise the Lord for the good that was accomplished. You know, we have disasters and we have all these things and we've got hyper, hyper, hyper personalities like myself. that just, oh, we could have fixed this, we could have fixed that. Hey, listen, before we get critical, let's praise God for the good that was accomplished. Amen. Well, we only had 20 people in Sunday school class. Well, praise God, you had 20 people. Next week, let's go after the 10 that didn't make it. Amen. But don't be critical about it. Number three, be thankful for low times as well as the high times. A lot of times God puts disappointments in our lives to see how thankful we're going to be. 
Number four, as a servant, we're not the boss, we're not the supervisor or manager. Always remember, we're always servants, we're not a boss, we're not a manager, we're not a supervisor. We're to give a good report of anything we're asked to be a part of. Listen, it's proper, and it's right. I spoke about this a few weeks ago about, about, about a can-do servant. A can-do servant has an attitude, you give a good report about anything you've been entrusted with, and you go beyond that by saying, listen, this is what you asked me to do, and uh, I just want to come meet with you because you're busy. I want, just want to let you know, this is what I did. Did I do it right? Is there anything else I'm supposed to do? That's the heart of a good servant there. Well, I'll wait to see what he tells me. Listen, when we have to wait for somebody to ask us, there's a little bit of a pride problem inside that. Number five, when we are corrected, be thankful someone cared enough to tell us that. Number six, don't have a quitter spirit when you're offended. Or if your idea is rejected. And a lot of times our ideas do get rejected because maybe the timing is not right. Seek to honor the Lord and not ourselves. By the way, Jesus went all the way to the cross. Dwight Moody used to have these meetings. Linda Yours' ministry, he'd invite preachers in. And he'd have them come to Massachusetts. He had a big, big place up there, and he'd have these conferences up there. And Dwight Moody, for those of you who don't know, Dwight Moody was one of the great evangelists of the 19th century, and especially towards the tail end of the 1800s, a great preacher of the Word of God. Scores of millions got saved from over three continents to his ministry. And one time he had a conference over there in Northridge up in Massachusetts where he brought all these European pastors in and these were some of the great men of God that came and men that wanted to learn the secret to deal Moody's life and how he did the things he did. And, and typical with European pastors, they had a custom. European pastors at the end of a day, as they would, they would retire to the room, they would take their shoes out and they'd leave their shoes outside their door. Now that meant when they left their shoes outside the door, someone would come by to take their shoes and polish their shoes for them. That's just the thing that they did in Europe. Nothing bad about that. It's a good thing. And so D.L. Moody was walking the walking the, the dormitory. He put these men up back in the boys' dormitory that he had there. And he's walking the dormitory that night. And he's praying over the rooms and praying for the speakers for the next day and praying about things going on. And he saw the shoes that were there. And it immediately dawned and said, oh, I forgot. These preachers, they have their shoes out here. They're just their customers for somebody to, to shine their shoes. And so immediately he went down to, down to the cafeteria and saw some of his young men down there. He said, guys, can I get, get your help over here? Listen, these preachers over there, there's a good number of these preachers that need their shoes shined. Can you help? And one gave an excuse for this. One gave an excuse for that. One gave an excuse for this. One gave an excuse for that. But Mr. Moody did not berate anybody. He could have used his authority to get on their case. And, well, listen, you need, to, you need to do this. He didn't do any of that. He just went back inside. He collected all the shoes. He tagged them. So he went and mixed the shoes up. That's a good idea, man. You know, he took all the shoes you know what he did he went to his own bedroom he took all the shoes by the love go he took all the shoes he got his own box out and he started polishing all the shoes brother moody started doing that about 10 o'clock at night it's now two o'clock in the morning he's still shining shoes he's, he's the conference moderator i mean this is a big conference this is a this is a major conference to inspire men to get a heart for god a man came by and saw the light in his room and he knocked on the door he said mr moody check out you doing okay and he opened the door and he saw mr moody there on his knees shining shoes if you know anything about Mr. Moody, he was a very overweight man. He was a man that was not in good health and shouldn't have been on his knees doing that. He should have actually been in bed. He had high blood pressure problems, cholesterol problems, a number of things like that. He needed to get some rest for his body. The man got down his knees, started helping Mr. Moody as best he could. Got all the shoes shined. Nobody knew that next morning as all those European preachers came out and went out and it just assumed that that custom that they did in Europe was being done here. Nobody knew until it was revealed many years later by that man that Mr. Moody was the one that shined most of those shoes. I'm saying tonight, that's the heart of a servant. See a need, take the lead. As we close tonight, would you notice one other thing? We've seen the struggle. We've seen the spirit. Would you notice the secret tonight? I want you to see a noble secret. 
And we see this fulfilled in David's life. I want you to see the noble secret to success. Why humility is such an important virtue. Such an important characteristic of the Christian life, of Christian service. Notice 1 Peter 5, verses 5 and 6, and we're done. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. Now, what was going on there? Well, preceding this, Peter gave instruction to the pastors of the diaspora. He gave instructions and he said, feed the flock which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint nor for filthy lucre, but of a willing mind. He says, you need to do the work of the pastor. You need to preach. You need to feed. You need to lead. He says, you need to take oversight. You need to take responsibility. Show some maturity. Don't do it for the money. Don't do it for the praise of man. He says, do it. Don't be lords over God's heritage. Be a servant of God. And then he addresses a problem that was rank throughout all of the churches there at that time. There was a struggle between those who were not pastors and those who were pastors. And so those who were younger were contending. There was contention, there was fighting, there were struggles, there were seditions. And he says, now he had to address all the younger people in the church. It's kind of like what they, what they call the wars between the teens and the elders and so forth, like their costumes, the elders and so forth like that. He says, likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves to the elder. Ye all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Now, notice, if you would, if you just focus on it for a little bit. You know what God just told us there in, in those two verses? God just told us the secret to spiritual success. Lord, give me more grace to deal with that person. Well, God can't give you grace unless you humble yourselves. Well, Lord, you, under, you don't understand. No, God does understand. He says, well, God, why didn't you answer my prayer? Let me, let me give you these thoughts because we need to close. Notice this. The secret to answered prayer is found in humility. The Syrophoenician woman, Jesus went up to Tyre and signed up for that one woman. And he wanted to test her to see how humble she was because Gentiles had a tendency to be very proud against Jewish men. And then she was a woman on top of that. Her daughter was demon possessed. And she, he just ignored her for a little bit just to see what she would do. And she, and then he said, well, tell her that it's not me for me to give, to, to give the, to give a bread to the, to the dogs. He was talking about, I, I can't give my best to Gentiles. And he wanted to see what she would say. She was giving some pushback there. That was very insulting what, what Jesus had said to him at that, that woman. And she said, man, she said, sir, she said, listen, I will even eat the crumbs underneath the table if you'll just give. She said, whatever you give me is better than what I deserve. That's what she was saying. And you know what? The reason why we don't have answers to prayer, and I thank God for Brother Norris's message on Wednesday, a very helpful message. But I'm going to tell you something tonight. One of the reasons why God doesn't answer our prayers is because there's too much pride in us and not enough humility. That's why. That's why. It's the secret to answer prayer. You've got a trial going on in your life right now. It might be because God is trying to teach us some humility. It's the secret to spiritual breakthroughs. I'm praying for numerous breakthroughs in every ministry of our church. I'm praying for breakthroughs as we open that door. I don't want that, that new building to be a dud. I want it to be a glorifying to God. But listen, we need some spiritual breakthroughs. And for these breakthroughs to happen in our hearts, it needs to happen in our faith. It needs to happen in our giving. And thus begin with the spirit of humility. It's a secret to healthy relationships. I'm going to tell you why your marriages, and there's some people that need to be here tonight that their marriages are having trouble. They're not here tonight. They need to hear this. There's one thought. The reason why your marriages have struggled, and the reason why you have struggled with your parents and children with parents and so forth like that and with each other, I'll tell you why. Because there's not enough humility in those relationships. It's the, it's the secret to healthy relationships. Yeah. 
I'm not going to say sorry. Well, you know, I got burned on that. I got thrown in the bus, so I'm not going to deal with that. You know what? Stop being crybaby and just humble yourself and say, listen, the Bible says, humble yourselves there from the mighty hand of God. He'll exalt you in due time. That's what he says there. It's the secret to seeing the blessing of God in our lives. Leonard Bernstein, the late conductor of the New York Philharmonic Orchestra, was once asked, what do you think is the most difficult instrument to play? What do you think? Without hesitation, Mr. Bernstein said, the second fiddle. I can get plenty of first violinists, but to find someone who can play the second fiddle with enthusiasm, that's a problem. And he said this, and if we have no second fiddle, we have no harmony. It was very fitting, Brother Denny, without us talking tonight, read from Ephesians 4 this evening about unity. My brethren, be not many masters, lest we come under the greater condemnation. Humility. It takes humility for God to use us. It takes humility to have fellowship with God. It takes humility for God to answer our prayers. It takes humility for great people relationships. And by the way, tonight, it takes humility to be saved. If you're tonight, you're not 100% sure you're saved going to heaven. You must humble yourselves, come before God. We have some people in our office this afternoon and trying to witness to them and tell them about the Lord. And we had a wonderful time with them. One of the individuals come from a foreign country basically said this, I hear what you're saying, but I can't get this in my head. And he kept repeating that, repeating that, repeating that. And basically what the person was saying is that I'm not ready to be saved. And he says, I'm not ready to humble myself to be saved. Let me tell you tonight, you can't get saved unless you humble yourself. And I invite you tonight, if you're not sure you're saved, you ought to humble yourself and come to Christ and say, Jesus, I need you to be my Savior and get saved tonight. It ought to be tonight that there be a congregation of people humble themselves and say, Lord, forgive me for my pride. Forgive me being about me, 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 I, I, I. And say, Lord, use me for friend day. Help me to use what you've given to me. And to say like David, who am I, O Lord God? That should be our question each and every day. Who am I? Lord God and Father tonight as we consider the thought of who am I we thank you tonight that you're the great I am and Lord we lift you up and honor you this evening I pray for your congregation your wonderful wonderful loving people tonight be so not obsessed with ourselves but obsessed with the person of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ Lord this is not a very popular message and not one that we would typically go on but I think about David's thought here tonight who am I it makes us cause and contemplate, Lord, we're really nothing apart from you. A man can receive nothing except to be given him from heaven. He must increase and I must decrease. Lord, tonight, there may be someone here who needs to get saved. I pray that they'll humble their heart and ask Jesus to save them. It may be tonight we're going through some struggles in our life. It may be some things in our life that, Lord, that we've let get in the way. And, Lord, really what you're looking for is a spirit of humility. Help us tonight to consider we have nothing except what was given us from God. We wouldn't be where we're at without you. We wouldn't have anything apart from you. And we must realize tonight that there's some things we need to do. Some of us need to deflect the praise back to God. And some of us tonight need to be at the place where we stop being critical and thank the Lord for his goodness. And some of us tonight need to be, need to be the place where we just, just realize tonight that we need just to shut our mouth and honor the Lord and be, be honoring to God. 
And Father, we, we pray, Lord, for this tonight. I'm, I'm a little fearful to pray for humility for us as a congregation. I think tonight that must be our own individual prayer. I think tonight that's what every teenager needs to pray for. I think tonight that's what every family needs to pray for. I think tonight those of us who are having spiritual struggles and are looking for a breakthrough, it might be because we haven't humbled ourselves. It might be, Lord, tonight we are in need of great correction in our, in our spirit or correction in our service and correction for our non-performance. And maybe tonight because of that, Lord, we, we must humble ourselves should that correct come and come soon it might be tonight there's a besetting sin and a heavy weight that we're carrying that's impeding our relationship with you lord tonight i pray for a congregation that would humble himself before god as we give the invitation lord we invite all to come we ask this evening that you'd help us to be a humble church a humble people before god we pray for this lord tonight in jesus name let's stand if you need to come tonight and i hope you will you'll come i my plea tonight if you're not saved would you come tonight and accept christ your savior do you know if you're saved tonight I invite you to come tonight and receive Jesus as your Savior. God needs a congregation of humble people. People that will lower themselves. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves to the elders. Hey, are you having trouble with a sponsor? Having trouble with a Sunday school student? Or maybe I should turn it around. Are you a, are you a teacher having trouble with the student? Or are you your, your sponsor having trouble with a young person? Maybe tonight you need to humble yourself. Maybe tonight that you're having trouble in your home. It might be there needs a need for humility. But tonight, I urge you this evening, we need to come before God. There may be a besetting sin. We need to humble ourselves before God. We're facing some difficulties and some ceilings in our life. It's time for a spiritual breakthrough. You say, well, God, I want God to use me. God can't use us if we're not humble. Let's humble ourselves before God. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you in due time. Hey, that's the secret to the blessing. That's the secret to answered prayer. That's the secret to seeing our family members saved. That's the secret of having a, a friend day that will be over the top for God. We must humble ourselves before a mighty and holy God. Are we too big? Are we too good? Are we too experienced? Are we too old? As some people say, I'm too old for these things. Are we too young? Are we too much this, too much that? Hey, I'll tell you what, we may be too much of a lot of things, but there's one thing we're not too much of. We're not too much of humility tonight. Just humble our hearts before God. Would you join us tonight? Humble ourselves before mighty God. Father, tonight we come to you this evening with hearts that are humble. Crucify the flesh. Put to death the pride. Inflate the eagle. Deflate the eagles. Deliver us from being lovers of selves instead of lovers of God. Forgive us for boasting more about ourselves than we boast of God. Forgive us for postings on Facebook and, and Twitter and Instagram and social media and our resumes that are so overinflated that really most of those things are not true. Lord, if we do anything, help us be like David where the emphasis in this chapter is the greatness of God, not the greatness of David. As we begin each day and end each day, help us to begin and end those days with emphasizing the greatness of God, not the greatness of ourselves. Father, thank you tonight for very tender hearts working our consciences and our spirit. Help us tonight to have a plan of action that will help us to live a victorious life in humility. And we'll thank you for this tonight, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.